You're listening to the Motherhood Unstressed Podcast, and I'm your host, Liz Carlisle. Thank you so much for tuning in. I am so glad you're here, as always. And like always, I'm bringing someone special to you to share their view of the world, to share their work with you in a way that's going to empower your life, to inspire you, to make you want to create your own beautiful life, whatever that looks like for you. This week, I am sitting down with the legendary Lynn Slater, better known as the Accidental Icon. With over 750,000 followers on Instagram and accolades from top brands and media outlets, Lynn's journey from social work professor to fashion influencer extraordinaire is nothing short of inspiring. Now, in this conversation, we're delving into Lynn's new memoir, out March 12th. The book is How to Be Old, Lessons in Living Boldly from the Accidental Icon. We explore her transformative decade where she defied expectations, battled ageism in influencer culture, and ultimately chose to walk away from it all at the peak of her career. Like every episode, I hope that it does plant a seed in you, um, one of positive growth and change. And this is one conversation that definitely did that for me. Um, I knew as we were speaking that the things she was saying and just her energy were going to sit with me for the rest of my life and influence how I rebel against traditional models of aging and and how we see ourselves in the narratives that we follow. So uh, like this episode absolutely improved my life. I hope that it does that for you. So please enjoy this episode on how to be old with Lynn Slater. Well, hello, Lynn. Welcome to the show. I'm so glad that you're here. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. I mean, you're iconic, obviously. Um, but to to lead us into how that all came to be, what about the events in your life happened that created a woman who, upon reaching a new decade in life, saw that as an opportunity rather than a loss or something to grieve about? Well, I think the interesting story is that I've kind of done that in every decade of my life. Um, I always, because I always, uh, I I worked for 47 years as a social worker. And um, during that time, I was building a career and, you know, I had a child and doing all the things that people do. And I would always, uh, when I would really feel stressed, go outside of my profession, my normal life, and either take a class that was sort of an expressive, creative thing like improv or creative writing and or put myself into a creative experience. And then I would bring that back into my life. And it would sort of magically metabolize and transform my life and make it a little easier and a little better. And that happened in my personal life and in my work life. So it was when I turned 60, it really wasn't me thinking anything other than I want to do this again. I'm feeling burnt out and Mm. I wanted to find a way to write that was different than the way I wrote in academia. And also I was really interested in clothing 
because I had seen how much power it has in the world to particularly in the world I was working in where I saw that people made big, important decisions sometimes based on how a person looked, Hmm. right? So I was very interested in the power that clothing has to sort of transgress and transform people's identity and the way that other people think about them. And so that's, that's what I wanted to explore in my blog. Wow. And I love in the book, the book that we're here to talk about today, How to Be Old, uh, which is really the antithesis of, of being old in today's culture. I love it so much. Um, how you were almost reticent to to start the blog, to really get out there. Um, and then your partner was like, just do it already. And so you did it. <laughs> and then it just grew into this phenomenon. Were there ever Was there ever any other points when you were really starting to blossom and grow and get all of this attention that you did feel a bit reticent, that you didn't want to be fully seen? And how did you push past that? Well, I think that in the beginning, you know, it was a, a small risk, so to speak, to have my partner who I knew loved me take my photograph. But I never really liked having my photograph taken. My family doesn't have a lot of photographs of me. And so the way that I managed sort of that initial tiny risk um, was to wear sunglasses. And so the sunglasses were sort of a way that I could maintain a little bit of privacy, sort of not give my whole self away. And it made me much more comfortable as the risks became even larger. And I remember uh, an incident in London shortly after I was signed by a modeling agency. I had an interview on BBC television, which was the first time I had ever appeared in my life on television. Um, I presented at conferences. I was not afraid of, you know, being in public, but I was so nervous. And they had told me to take my sunglasses off because they didn't want the glare. Mm. And what ended up happening is my agent was with me and she literally had to tell them, you need to let her put her sunglasses on because otherwise like I was completely like a deer in headlights. Mm. And so they did. (laughs) And I was able to get through the interview. And over time I got a lot better at it, right? At anything that you get a lot of practice at. But, you know, I think, I think what made it feel very risky and partly why I left, which is the end of the book, is that once you get to a certain place in the public eye, that sometimes you lose control of the narrative that you want to tell. And so that really happened to me. Um, Society kind of positioned me as this image of how women should age. And I think initially, we really had to have a lot of positive images because ageism is so great and the fear of aging is so great. But I think we've gone a little too far in terms of 
now there's this image of age of of older life where you're kind of ageless and you have a lot of money and you're doing whatever you want and you're a hundred percent perfectly fit and you don't need anything and that's not really a realistic picture of aging for the majority of aging women. And mm. so I think we have to get a little bit better. I mean, one of the things that I love about your project and a lot of other young women now who are writing about motherhood is that you're kind of blowing up that idealized, you know, fantasy of motherhood and you're kind of saying no this is what it is right it's labor particularly during the pandemic you know you're you spent so much time on this need for self-care and mindfulness which i think comes from that confrontation about you know it's not it's not as idealized a state as everybody thinks it is and and I see a big parallel with aging because, well, yeah. yeah, because there are, you know, I, basically what I say is that it's like any other time of your life. And my book is a decade of a life. And in that decade, I experienced the same things that I experienced in every other decade of my life. So I had challenges, I had opportunities, I had role changes, um, my body changes. But as women, you know, from the time we entered puberty, our body is changing. It changes mm -hmm. when you're pregnant. It changes in menopause. So, so to me, we shouldn't make the changes and the challenges and the opportunities of aging be so different than all the things that we experience earlier in life. And then you bring with you this knowledge, well, hey, I successfully responded to all of those things throughout my whole life. What makes you think I'm not going to be able to do it when I'm old? Right. And that seems to be I think the greatest barrier to a lot of people, I mean, like you say in the book, we're all following this narrative of what we think motherhood should be, what we think aging should be, what we think marriage should be. And then it's like, when that doesn't meet up to these expectations, then we're like, well, something's wrong with me, or, you know, I'm just failing at this thing going on in my life right now. But I love when I was reading your book, you say that you're a rebel, that you're a refuser, that you're belligerent. And I was reading it and my husband was sitting next to me. I'm like, I am her. She is me. I mean, everything you were saying, I was like, yes, yes, yes. Because even when I became a new mom, I was like, I'm not going to lose myself in this. I'm not. I mean, it was definitely a struggle, but I held on so tightly to the fact that I wasn't going to just, you know, just toss my body out the window and toss my my sense of self out the window. And I see that parallel so much in what you're doing. Can you talk about being a belligerent woman and what you mean when you say that? Well, I think it is, again, the best belligerent we can be, I think. And in my book, I talk about how my grandmother did it and how my mother did it and how I'm doing it and my daughter and my granddaughter 
is that you're resisting narratives that society puts on you that don't fit with who you are, what your circumstances are, what you are able or not able to do. And you're really saying, you know, this is my version of the narrative. And so I think that there's so much research out there about something called narrative identity, which is how we make sense of ourselves and our lives. And it actually, when you own your narrative identity, when it is coherent for you, it research shows your well-being is dramatically improved. And so what happened for me is that over time, I think in the beginning of my project, the first four years, I was controlling the narrative. And then at some point I lost control. Mm -hmm. And so when it got to the point where people were putting me into articles, calling me senior influencer, Instagram, um, plus being in the whole Instagram influencer world, I just said, this is not my story anymore. This is not who I am. It's not who I want to be. And I'm quitting. And so this sort of new narrative about me is really someone who is a writer, which I have always wanted to be my whole life. Um, And I guess I did lose myself in my sort of, family caregiving responsibilities and in my career. And so it was always put, you know, on the shelf. And I think back now that when we're younger, we have all of these sort of mood boards and daydreams about, you know, are we going to have a partner and will we have children or not? And, you know, am I going to have a house or you know, all of these daydreams that you have, but we never have the daydream. Oh, what am I going to be like as an older woman? And I think during the hard times of balancing all that in my 30s, if I had a moment when I was feeling bad that I couldn't write, that if I had been able to say to myself, you know what, when you are 70, you are going to publish your first non-academic book. And I think I would have had so much comfort from that. Mm. I would have said, okay, I'm going to get through this and I will have my moment. But we don't, you know, that's that's my big advice to, to younger women right now is start making a mood board about how you really want to be old. So do you want to spend four hours with a trainer Do you want to be using your time to try to look young when the fact remains that you're going to get old? It's inevitable. If you're lucky. Yes. If you're lucky, it's a privilege. And so, or would you rather have money in the bank and good enough health because you've taken care of your health when you're young? right? Not obsessively because of your appearance, but just because you want to have a healthy life, you know, then you have this sort of bank of opportunities when you're old. But we spend so much time and money and labor 
being afraid of it and trying to stave it off that you're not going to have the resources or the energy or the sort of joy that you might have when you're old if you really stop being afraid of it. Yeah, absolutely. And is that why you wanted to bring your memoir, your story to the world now at this time after, you know, having, you know, created this whole big brand and then it kind of it grew to be almost distasteful to you because it wasn't really the truth anymore. Is that why you wanted this book to go out now? Yes, because I wanted I wanted people to see um, sort of some of I was quite impacted by being a social media creature where I was once I made the transition from blogging to being an influencer on Instagram is when everything started going south. Mm. And I think that once you get into this social media sort of world, it's like a whirlpool, right? It's moving so fast. You're on your phone like 24 hours a day. You have to be posting. You have to be engaging. You have to that it doesn't leave you time. And, and you're a big proponent of this for mindfulness, for critical reflection. And you're just on this merry-go-round of, you know, constant content production. And so uh, right before the pandemic, I was feeling very, very burnt out. Mm. And then the pandemic happened and everything had to stop. And so that was when I kind of really did a lot of critical thinking and reflection on what had happened to me and how I got there, but then how I wanted to take control of my life and my story moving forward. And I think that it's, it's very interesting because I had had a literary agent for like three years before I could write a book proposal. Because mm -hmm. initially, you know, the book that everyone wanted me to write, it was about being an influencer and being a badass older woman. But I wasn't feeling that way. Mm -hmm. I wasn't feeling like a badass and I wasn't feeling good at that time. And so it was only after I recovered myself that I could sit down and write a book proposal about what I really wanted to write about and the story I really wanted to tell um, sort of as a cautionary tale to, uh, to a lot of younger people who now interestingly are also uh, saying, Oh, I'm going to be, a, a, I'm going to be part of this de-influencing movement. So they're quitting because of mental health reasons. Yeah. So I was sort of ahead of the curve on that one. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, that that is the message. I have a whole chapter on making mistakes. And I hope that I'm letting and showing people know that you can make a misstep, you can miscalculate, but you can always find your way back. 
And isn't that kind of the purpose of life is to try things, to do things? I mean, if you never want to be criticized, what's that quote? Then don't say anything, don't do anything, don't be anything. And then no one will ever criticize you. Well, where's the life in that? Exactly. Exactly. And that that goes with the risks and it goes with the rewards. And, you know, and I have to say that a good part of my experience, particularly in the earlier years, was amazing. I got to travel all over the world, something that as a professor and a social worker would not have been available to me. Um, and so it that was my number one. My number two was meeting so many creative people yeah. of all ages. Um, yeah, that there were many high points, but then it got to a point where it wasn't what it was supposed to be anymore. Yeah. So I guess, do you, do you ever, I guess I'm hearing you don't regret starting the blog and getting into Instagram because it did afford so many opportunities and experiences in your life. But I really admire how you listen to that internal voice, that still small voice within that said, this isn't right. This isn't my truth. This isn't what I want to put out into the world. Was that hard to, to listen to that because all this money was coming at you and all of this, you know, the, all these accolades and, you know, the ego loves that, right? Especially right. when you're so successful. Was it hard to listen to that voice and say no? Or did your rebellious spirit say, let's say no? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's always on the table. But, <laughs> but I do think, and again, this is an important issue that a lot of moms are talking about, and it's also an important issue for grandmothers, is that the, the, the load of caring work and caring professions is on women. And as a social worker, I was in a caring profession, and it's, it is predominantly women. And it started, its history was a way an acceptable way for women to get out of the home and go to work. But it was just making us do public caregiving instead of private caregiving. And so consequently, how you're rewarded for that work, as we know, is it's not valued, right? Like other forms of labor. And so because I was a social worker, and all the way up until I was doing Accidental Icon, I was not paid a big salary. I literally entered my 50s with about $7,000 in a retirement account, period, because the jobs I worked did not have pensions, things like that. And so I do take ownership. I think that I'm healthy. My mother lived till 95. And as I got older and I started to think, am I going to have enough money <laughs> to live that long that this exorbitant, crazy money that was being thrown at me, I think I was susceptible because of that fear. And I take ownership of that in the book. And, you know, one specific example is like my very first big international campaign for which I worked probably nine hours. Um, I, I received 
80% of my yearly salary as a profession, as a professor. Right. So that really, again, goes back to the question, what does society value? And so, you know, the honest answer is that it wasn't like one day I said, well, you know, I'm not doing this anymore. It was sort of, I had to like wean myself off it. Mm -hmm. And fortunately, because I was so terrified, you know, I had a lot of people saying, well, invest it back in your brand, the money you're making, like hire a team and mm -hmm. get professional videographers and, you know, hire designers to redo your website. And because I was in it from that scarcity view, I did not do those things. And so um, I certainly feel a little more confident about that I can take care of myself as um, in my older years. So I love that. And I love that, again, you're standing strong as a mother, as a grandmother um, in your truth. And again, I keep coming back to that because you do come across as so authentic. And I think that that was really what garnered all this attention from the get because it's like there's this woman who is strong and beautiful and creative and intelligent. And it's like all those things that we do want for ourselves. You know, we do want to be that image of a woman when we reach our later years and there you are exhibiting it and there's no one really else out there doing it. Now, do you still feel kind of a responsibility to be this, this standard of, of what a woman should be? Well, I think that's changed. I kind of have a new sort of responsibility that I feel. And this book is giving me a real opportunity to have the conversation is that, you know, as I said, I was put into this position of being, oh, this is idealized aging and this is how all women should age without any mention of the privilege I did have because I do, um, to make that happen for me. And I think, I think what I'm trying to do now, right, is to say we have these two poles, right, where you're either going to be demented and disabled and a drain on society with lots of, you know, health problems and you're going to ruin the economy and all the life of all the generations behind you. And then, as I said, you have this very like ageless, perfect aging person. And so I feel like my responsibility now is to convey the middle, which is a hundred. It's like 80% of all women who are aging right now. Right. Many of them have under six-figure incomes because they're on fixed incomes. But many of them are living within their means to still have a meaningful and creative life. And so um, that's where I want to situate myself. I want those stories to be represented. And through my writing and through my sort of... Uh, putting forth those sorts of stories that I'm hoping I want younger women to really know what they're getting into, 
And just like younger women are doing now about this is the truth of motherhood. This is the truth of marriage. This is the truth of divorce. Um, I want to be an older woman who is saying this is the truth of being older. And I think as younger women are becoming, I'm hoping, less fearful of being older, that they're more willing to ask the questions that they're afraid of. And, you know, it was interesting. I had an interview the other day, and it was a younger woman who is trying to work through her fear. And she asked me, it was so powerful. She said, well, you're 70. Do you think about dying all the time? And that's a really deep question, right? And probably in the back of a lot of young people's mind is this fear of death, mm -hmm. right? Which relates to fear of aging. And it's very interesting because like anything else, you know, there are times that I will wake up at night and think, okay, it's coming. But the flip side of that is that it makes me live my life more urgently to savor every moment, to take nothing for granted in ways that I did when I thought, oh, I have a whole lifetime to figure mm -hmm. that out. Um, so I would be lying if I said that I didn't think about it, that I didn't wonder about it, that I didn't think about how it will happen. Um, I think it really was helpful that I was present during the last days of my mother's life and at her death. So I have an image of it. Um, but I think, I think if you know that, if you know the hard parts of being old and the good parts of being old, that you can much more successfully prepare yourself to enter that time of your life in a way that's going to be really meaningful and important to you. Yeah, so beautifully said. And I love how in the book you do address that. You are almost giving us through your own story a, a road plan, you know, of, of how it should go or how to at least optimize your own personal journey. Um, do you have any kind of advice that you want to leave with the listener to to kind of create that that beautiful life for themselves? What can we all do to create lives that we love? I mean, everyone's so individualized, but are right. there certain things that you incorporated in your life that are like, man, that was really good. I'm so glad I did that. Well, I think again, it's always, there's two things, right? Is really making time in your life to be reflective about what you're doing so that you can change course if you need but I think the other thing is creativity. And I think people think creativity is, oh, I'm going to be a painter or, you know, a photographer. But particularly moms, right? I watched my own mother. She had six children, not a lot of resources. She was the most creative artist I ever met in my life mm -hmm. because she could take anything and sort of turn it around. Like a cardboard box could become this incredible Halloween costume where you were a jack-in-the-box. And she had made these beautiful 
turquoise and orange diamonds all over it. And you had the best costume in the class. And I think mothers and women every day are doing creative things. Like maybe they're cooking something and they decide, you know what, I'm not going to follow this recipe. I'm going to put this in. That's creativity. Mm -hmm. And so I think really using the creativity that's innately in all of us to really think about and respond to the challenges that life can bring, that is my biggest thing. And and again, as I said before, you should go do mood boards of what kind of older woman you want to be. Where do you see yourself living? What do you see yourself doing? What are the relationships in your life? What are the things that you might not have time for now, but that you'd like to explore? And make it be something. And again, part of that planning is, okay, what's going to happen if I end up in a wheelchair? How does that implicate where I live, how I live? At some point, you know, one of the reasons we moved to Peekskill, it's a very small walkable city, is that at some point we realized, well, we might not be able to drive, but that doesn't mean we can't go to our coffee house and Mm -hmm. see all our friends. And so there's some things you can plan for. Others are very unexpected, but that's life. Right. Right. That happens to you now. Right. Yeah, I think that's kind of the theme I'm getting from this conversation is that you always have to be adaptable. You always have to be creative to get through the ups and downs of life. And why would that change when you reach a certain age? You don't push that off. It it doesn't end. Life never ends until the final ending. And here's the thing about it. By the time you do get to my age, you have so many skills and so many experiences and so much confidence to apply your knowledge to these challenges. Believe me, it's much easier for me to deal with a challenge today than it was when I was in my 30s. Because I'm a lot smarter and I have a lot more experience and I have a lot more skills that I've developed over my life. So we always see aging as a loss. But the older you are, you're adding all of the gifts and experiences and things from every single decade of your life, it's coming into you with old age. So it's a big buffer against the loss. I love that. Again, like that's right there. That's breaking a narrative that I think we've all been taught in life growing up, seeing older people. It's like, you don't talk about that aspect of it, you know, the the accrued wisdom that you get over the years, especially if you're open and you're appreciative and you're grateful for everything that you're going through, good or bad. Yep. Yeah. Were there any like key players in your life? Obviously, your mother was a big driver in your personality and how you see the world. Were there any other people who really shaped you and how you see the world? Well, I think, you know, I was born in the 1950s, which was kind of a repressive time for women. You know, it's pretty much nuclear family, housewife. And from that, you know, I got to see the women's movement that came out of that time. 
But I think um, my grandmother was very rebellious and she went outside of the usual gender roles. My mother did it in her little, uh, you know, like my name, L-Y-N, is the masculine spelling of the name Lynn. The mm -hmm. feminine spelling is L-Y-N-N. And so she had her little moments mm -hmm. of rebellion. Um, and then I had my childhood all the way through college. I was taught by nuns um. who offered me this vision of an intellectual woman who was kind of running their life on their own terms in the midst of being in authority and a patriarchal system. And I would watch how they would nav navigate that, right? And sort of, again, it was, I've seen these women in my life pressing to tell their own story in spite of the story that society wanted to tell about them. And all of my mentors throughout my career have been women like that. Mm. And as a professor, I was like that. I challenged my students to say, well, why do you have to do it that way? Who says? And here's the parameter you have to stay within. But let's look at 800 other ways you could do that than the way you're being told to. That is not feeling good to you. Yeah, yeah. I love how you say in the book, you know, you would have to go to these meetings and they're like, this is how it's going to be. And then you would just close your door and <laughs> do it the way you wanted to do it. But that's that's what students need. That's what all young people need is a way of thinking differently about age old problems that, you know, aren't getting solved because we've been doing things the same way. Yeah, exactly. And I think I had the smallest reading list. I literally would just assign one reading, but then my PowerPoint would be questions about the reading. And then I would say, okay, if you didn't read it, pull it out, go find the answer. Because over time, college students don't read what's on those ridiculous reading lists anyway. Mm -hmm. Or I would say, if we can't answer the question, go on your computer, let's start looking it up. And then we're going to look at how do we know if we can rely on this or not. And so I didn't never did textbooks. That was sort of my way. Yeah. And that's how you teach people to think in creative yeah. and problem solving ways. Beautiful. We are continuing to do that with your book. It comes out in mid-March. Uh, I'll probably release this episode right around that time. So it's all coordinated. Um, oh my gosh, we are almost out of time. Lynn, if there were any final message that you would want to leave with the listener today, the woman tuning in about your life, about the book, about anything you feel called to share, what would that be? That as a woman in our society, and it's particularly right now, there are a lot of people trying to impose how you should live, how what you should do with your body, <laughs> all sorts of things. And that being clear about what your story is and holding firm to that story is something that I think is the most important thing that you can do. 
Beautifully said. And thank you so much for this book. I love it so much. My husband's going to get tired of me talking about it to him. <laughs> but it's like, uh, it's just truth ringing out. And I just align with that so much. So thank you. Thank you for coming on the show and sharing your wisdom with us today. And thank you for, I wish you had been around when I was a mother. Mm. <laughs> it would have been helpful to me. Honestly, that's why I started this is because I needed some kind of centering, some kind of anchor in the storm of new motherhood. So out of that came this. <laughs> well, congratulations. It's a great project. Well, thanks, Lynn. You have been listening to the Motherhood Unstressed podcast, where we navigate the beautiful chaos of motherhood together. For more inspiration and insights, please visit our website at motherhoodunstressed.com, or you can visit me on social at motherhoodunstressed. Remember, you are not alone in this journey. Until next time, stay unstressed, empowered, and embrace the joy of motherhood. Take care, and I'll catch you on the next episode. This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big.